Titus chapter 3. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. Jake mentioned this at the beginning of our service, but we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, We are not going to be coming by uh, distributing the elements, but we've provided those for you at the back of the sanctuary. There's a table over on this side and a table on this side. Uh, If you need to hop up and grab the elements so that you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, uh, you are more than welcome to do that. They're at the back of the room on either side. We're going to celebrate that together at the end of the sermon this morning. Uh, Our passage, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, we've read these verses. If you're like me and you've been tracking through this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, you read Titus 3, 3 to 7, and you think to yourself, those are beautiful, stirring words. And it's not to say that the rest of Titus is not beautiful or stirring. Uh, All of Scripture is beautiful. All of Scripture is inspired. It's all profitable and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. It's all equally true and has value. But there is a difference in reading a summary of the gospel like what we just read in Titus 3, 3 to 7 and reading a list of things that ought to be true of elders. Those two things don't read exactly the same. One is a list. And we need the list. We need the list that says your elders ought to be this, this, and this and not that, that, and that, Uh, but this passage reads differently. It's a beautiful, beautiful summary of the gospel, and the only way that we can make sense of it is to put it in context with the rest of the book of Titus. And so for many of you, this will be repeat of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. If this is the first week you've been with us on a Sunday, we want to sort of lay the groundwork for why we're talking about these verses and how we ought to understand them. So, you know, Paul... He left Titus on the island of Crete, a large island in the Mediterranean Sea, and he left him there, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, to put what remained into order. What remained are these churches, these infant, baby, brand new churches that had been started on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And Titus's job was to stay, not to move on with the team, but to stay on Crete and to put these churches into order. And it's a good reminder for us as we are part of a church, that God cares about His church being put into order. He's not left us to be inventive or creative or to do whatever might pop into our head when we think about how to organize a church or how a church ought to function, but He's actually given us instructions about how a church should be put into order. And basically, when you work your way through the book of Titus, you find that a church put into order has right leadership, right doctrine, and right living. And those are the major sections of this letter. There's a short introduction, and then there's a a section about right leadership. Titus was to establish right leadership in these churches. Right at the middle, chapter 2, 11 to 14, there's a section on right doctrine. And then at the end, there's a section on right living. And we're in that final section at this point, thinking about right living amongst the people of God people who are part of the church. Now, one of the things I said to you last week is that the small section at the middle about right doctrine is the heart of this book. And again, that's not to say that anything else is unimportant or less important, but right doctrine is the heart of the book because as you read through Titus, it's clear that right leadership bears the responsibility of teaching right doctrine. 
And it's also clear as we continue to work through this final section in the book that when right doctrine is presented by the leaders of a church, the result that you ought to expect and look for is right living. And at the middle of all of that is right doctrine. And we said last week, right doctrine centers on the gospel. That's the heart of the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. It's a summary of the gospel. Right doctrine in the church centers on the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, really, it's the story of the Bible. It's Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, that's a lot. And so I've been presenting you with a four-sentence summary of the gospel over the last couple of weeks. We could say more about the gospel than this, but you really can't say less and still be talking about the gospel. It's a message that begins with God. God who is holy. God who's the creator. God who's the supreme authority. The gospel is a message about our sin. Our fallenness, our brokenness, our rebellion, our transgression, our disobedience, our foolishness. We're sinful people and our sin has separated us from a right relationship with a holy God. The gospel is a story about Jesus. It's a message about Jesus, who he is, the eternal son of God who took on flesh, walked this earth, lived a life of perfect obedience, and died a sacrificial death on the cross for sinners, who was raised from the dead as we just sang. The gospel is a message not only for you to know something, but also for you to do something, and that something that you're called to do is repentance and faith, turning from your sin and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a summary of the gospel message as you find it described in the New Testament. And the gospel is connected with this final section in Titus as we think about right living. Here's the big idea of our passage. The gospel empowers and motivates right living. That's a positive way of saying it. You could say it negatively. Without the gospel, apart from the gospel, there will be no right living. The gospel is essential. It's critical. It's vital in empowering us, enabling us to live rightly and in motivating us as the people of God to live rightly. So the gospel empowers and motivates right living. Let me tell you a short story, very, very short. Tuesday early morning this week, I had to make an emergency trip to the grocery store. I was informed late Monday night that in our grocery shopping the weekend before, we had failed to buy coffee. And as of Monday night, we were out of coffee. And so I was told, in the morning, we're going to need you to go get some coffee. So go to the store, get some coffee. So I went to Market Street. That's where we usually go. I got the coffee. I'm there at the self-checkout. Almost nobody in the store. I'm scanning the things, typing my number in. And I look over at the wall. Have any of you been in Market Street this last week? Do you know what is for sale at the front right there by the registers? It's not Permian shirts. Sometimes it's Permian shirts. It's not Permian shirts. It's not... Uh, UTPB gear. Sometimes they have Falcons over there. It's not UTPB. You know what it is? It's the Dallas Cowboys. A whole wall of t-shirts for the Dallas Cowboys right there by the register. It's 6 a.m. I'm buying coffee, which means I haven't drank any coffee yet. And I look at that wall of all those Cowboy shirts, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I let out a giant groan. 
And I thought to myself, do we have to bring the misery of the Dallas Cowboys all the way forward to the month of May? Can we just have one or two more months without this misery? Now you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, he must not like football. No, I like football. You're saying, well, he must not like the Dallas Cowboys. No, I love the Dallas Cowboys. I love the Dallas Cowboys, which is why they make me so miserable. It's because when I looked at that wall of shirts in Market Street at 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning, I knew what was about to happen the rest of this year, and it got jump-started for me on Tuesday. Here's what's going to happen the rest of this year. I guarantee you this is what's going to happen. Summer's upon us. And over the summer, Dallas Cowboy fans are going to get excited because they always get excited. We got the draft. We got. Do you know who we drafted? We drafted the greatest players ever. They're going to be so amazing. They're going to change. We got new coaches here. We got this guy's gone, and we got this guy. And, and people on ESPN, they're not dumb. They know how to make money. They get you to listen by talking about the Dallas Cowboys. And they say, oh, the Dallas Cowboys, are they the Super Bowl favorites? No, they're not the Super Bowl favorites. But they're going to talk about it because you and I are going to listen to it. And we're all going to get excited, Dallas Cowboy fans going to get excited. You know what's going to happen in the fall? It's going to get ramped up. Because in the fall, like the first month of the season, we're going to probably play somebody like the Washington Commanders or the Carolina Panthers, and we're going to score like 60 points in a game, and people are going to go crazy. And they're going to say, this is it. We haven't seen this kind of offense since Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin and Emmett Smith. They're unstoppable. Can you, we got our defensive coordinator back. Can you believe it's the greatest? And it's just going to reach a fever pitch, a frenzy. And it's going to happen in this church. It's going to happen with Jake Graves and Jake Wood. They're going to start saying to Corey and I, this is it, we're unstoppable, we're undefeatable, we're going to win the Super Bowl, they're going to want to go get tattoos, Super Bowl champions, <laughs> Dallas Cowboys with the year, and Corey and I are going to say, whoa, it's September, it's September, do you know what happens to the Dallas Cowboys when the clock strikes midnight on Thanksgiving? You turn into a pumpkin. And they're going to fall apart. And you're going to think they had a chance, and they might barely make the playoffs or barely miss the playoffs or who knows. But they'll find a way just to completely ruin everything and break our hearts. And at the end, they'll be the same old cowboys. Now, I say that based on 20, 30 years of history. Looking back as a Cowboys fan saying, I want them to win the Super Bowl so badly. If they win the Super Bowl, maybe we'll go get that tattoo. I don't know. But I look at it on this side and I say, I don't think they can change. I don't think they can change. Change is a funny thing when you think about sports, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed this, but coaches get paid a lot of money to bring change to a team, change to a locker room, change to an organization. And usually they get a very short window of opportunity to deliver on that change. And if they don't deliver on the change, they lose their job and teams move on to somebody else. Change is a tricky thing when you think about sports. It's also a tricky thing when you think about yourself, people. Just a couple of questions I would ask you to wrestle with this morning as we think about Titus 3. Number one, can people change? Number two, if not, why not? And number three, if so, how? And I'm not asking for out loud answers. I'm just asking you to start running these questions through your head. Can people change? If you say no, why not? And if you say yes, how do they do it? 
And I've thought about these questions a lot this last week, and here's my conclusion. The answers to those questions are not simple answers. They're actually complex, really complex. And my guess is I could sit down with you, depending on how you answer these questions, and I could lay out for you scenarios and circumstances and individuals and describe things to you, and you would say, depending on what I'm describing to you, no, there can't be change there. And then I could describe other situations, other scenarios, circumstances, and you could say, yes, I think there could be change there. It's not a simple answer. I imagine if you look at yourself individually, that you can go all the way back to elementary school and you can think about some deep-seated personality things that are true of you today that were true of you all the way back in elementary school. And you can look at those things and say, man, I haven't changed at all. That's just kind of who I am. But I also bet you can look at certain areas of your life back a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and you can say, I have changed. It's not a simple answer. It's a complex answer, but that's what we're dealing with. If you look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he starts off saying, once we were, once we were like this, we used to be a certain kind of person, certain kind of people. Then in verse 4, he says, but something has happened. And that thing that has happened in space-time history has brought change to our lives. And so this morning, we're wrestling with this question of change, and we're thinking about right living. And we'll just start with the fundamental biblical truth that you need to have as a bedrock in your mind when you want to think biblically and theologically about anything. Left to ourselves, right living is impossible. Apart from the gospel, left to ourselves, right living is impossible. We are sinful, fallen, depraved creatures. Sin has affected every part of who we are, and it's a problem we can't pull ourselves out from. Notice how Paul describes it in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He starts off and says, once we were foolish and disobedient. Foolish and disobedient. Foolishness has to do with your mind. And biblically, not just your mind and your thinking, but also your heart. The fool has a thinking problem and a heart problem in the book of Proverbs. And Paul says to Titus to remind the churches, once we were like that, we were foolish. We had a problem in our thinking and a problem in our feeling, in our hearts. And the result of that is disobedience. That's how sin works. It starts internally in your heart and in your mind, and then it plays out in your life. There was an internal problem, foolishness, which resulted in an external problem, disobedience. We broke God's commands and His rules. Notice what he says next. He says, we were led astray and we were slaves. We were led astray and we were slaves. That statement that we were led astray reminds us that there are forces of evil at work in the world who want to lead you away from the truth want to lead you away from God. We could talk about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, we could talk about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work amongst the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2. 
We could talk about following the course of this world, the way that the world operates and just sort of being swept up in that. But there are forces that seek to lead you astray. And Paul says that was us, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. This is something people rarely understand about sin, but it's enslaving. Our culture says to you with a straight face, you are free to do whatever you want to do, so follow your heart and get after it. And the Bible says if you do that, you will find yourself a slave. That's how sin works. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Lastly, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Sin always moves outwards in your life. It never stays internal. It never stays within your own little bubble. It always impacts other people and how you think about other people and relate to other people. Malice, envy, and hatred. That's our condition apart from the gospel. Left to ourselves, right living is impossible. Now, not everything in your life is impossible. I just want to acknowledge this and be honest. There's a lot of things in your life you can do and you can change all on your own. All on your own. People do these sorts of things all the time. We could talk about sobriety and substance abuse. And for every person that you show me whose testimony is that God helped them through quitting substance abuse, quitting drinking, quitting whatever, there's another person who says, well, I quit, but I'd I don't believe in God. I'm just telling you, there's people who do that. They get clean apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's possible. It happens. We just should admit that. It's not to diminish Jesus. It's just to be honest. People can do that. We could talk about self-discipline and self-control. You might reach a point in your life where you say, man, I'm lazy. I need to grow up. I need to get my act together. I need to be more disciplined. I need to be intentional. I need to have a plan for my life. There's people who certainly do that from a Christian perspective, but there's also people who just reach that realization on their own, apart from faith in God, and they say, I want to be more intentional and disciplined. We could talk about diets and exercise. There's certainly people whose testimony would be, man, I was really struggling. I asked God to help me with this, and this has been the outcome. But you understand there's people who, they go to the gym, they drink their protein shake, they do all that stuff, and it really doesn't have anything to do with God at all. They're bringing a change to their life, just like the person who, who gets sober, just like the person who becomes more disciplined, the person who becomes physically fit. Learning would be in this category. You might just say, you know what, I don't know. I, I don't know much about this thing. I want to learn about it. I want to study about it. I want to read books about it. I want to watch some videos or some lectures about it. I want to go to school. I want to get a degree. I want to further my education. That's change in your life. Learning is change. And you're capable of that kind of change. People can do all those things on their own. Here's the one thing that is impossible for all of us left to ourselves, and it's cleaning up the sin in our lives. It's not possible. You might replace one sin with another sin, but you're not going to get rid of sin in your life. You're not going to move to a, a spot of right living apart from the gospel message. Other things in the New Testament that would confirm this, I'll just give you these quickly. Number one, sinners don't seek God. That's Romans chapter 3. It's one of Paul's chief conclusions in Romans 1, 2, and 3. 
there's lots of religious people in the world, but left to ourselves, we don't seek after God. That's not a change that we initiate on our own. We don't truly seek after God apart from His grace and His mercy. Secondly, sinners are under a curse. When I say we're under a curse, I don't mean like a jinx or a hex or a little spell a witch would cast on you. I mean you're under the righteous condemnation of a holy God. There is a sentence of death hanging over your head. Right living is so far beyond the pale when that curse, that sentence of death and condemnation is already there hanging over you. Lastly, sinners are spiritually dead. Americans rarely think about sin. When we do, we think that sin makes us bad. That's true. But what's more true biblically is that sin makes you dead. Spiritually dead. That's the clear teaching of Ephesians chapter 2. Yes, there's the prince of the power of the air. Yes, we're following the course of this world. But fundamentally, sin has rendered us spiritually dead. And dead people do not have the ability to change their condition at all. That means left to ourselves apart from God's grace, right living is impossible. You can't do it on your own. That's not a very hopeful truth, but it's important foundational truth that you need to understand in order to understand what comes next in Titus 3, and that's the grace of God. The grace of God makes right living possible. The grace of God makes right living possible. We're at the end of the year, and students are taking tests. If you're in high school, you might have an English test coming up, and you might have to know about conjunctions. And a lot of you remember a song from back in the good old days about conjunctions and all that good stuff. There's one really important one in verse 4. Because in verse 3, Paul lays out who we were. This is who we were. But in verse 4, he says, but. He's introducing a contrast. It's called an adversative conjunction. It's a pivot. It's a change in direction. This is who you were and who you are left to yourself But, and what does he say? The goodness and the loving kindness of our Savior has appeared. Verse 5 talks about God saving us, not by our works, done in righteousness. We don't have any of those. He saved us by his own mercy. Verse 7 says he justified us, not because of any good thing that we've done, but he justified us by his grace. It's God's grace that brings the change in our lives, and apart from God's grace, there is no hope of, of change. Now, we're not going to chase these out right now on Sunday morning, but I gave you some verses on your outline, verses in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, and this is simply what I want to point out to you. Romans 3, we don't seek God. Galatians 3, we're under a curse. Ephesians 2, we're dead. In each of those passages, Paul uses language the exact same way, and he describes our condition as sinners, and then he builds towards the word, but. But. We don't seek God, but. We're under a curse, but. We're spiritually dead, but. God makes us alive 
It's the same logic in all of these passages. The gospel can be stated with different words and uh, different order of thoughts, but it's the same message. We have a problem. That problem is our sin in, in light of God's holiness, and the solution comes from God, not from us, but God. God's grace makes the difference. God's grace secures our salvation, and it makes right living possible. This is what we sang about just a moment ago. We sang a new song. I think it's the second week that we have sang it, and the opening verse is the opening verse from John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton's a man who experienced amazing change in his life, and he attributed it to the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And the opening line of Amazing Grace says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We sing that all the time. You can probably sing it without even thinking about it. You might stumble on the next couple of verses of Amazing Grace, but you probably know that one. It's just part of our cultural vocabulary in the 21st century. You can watch singing competition shows, uh, America's Got Talent or The Voice or American Idol, whatever. Somebody's going to sing this song. It's just common. We're familiar with it. We hear it all the time. If you go to a funeral service or a memorial for some sort of tragedy, odds are this will be part of it. Somebody's going to play Amazing Grace, or the guys are going to get the bagpipes and march down the street. What are they going to play? They're going to play Amazing Grace. It's just common in our cultural experience. We're so, so familiar with the words of this song. We even sing this song. This is odd to me, but it's real. We sing it at interfaith services. You know what an interfaith service is? It's when you get some Christians and a pastor up on the stage, and then you get some Buddhists and a monk up on the stage, and a, some Muslims and a, an imam on the stage, and you get all these different people. Maybe you even have some secular people and a, an atheist, uh, secular humanist atheist up on the stage. And you have this interfaith service, and you try to talk about everything that you have in common, which is really nothing, but you just pretend for a little while like we have something in common. If you've ever watched one of these or been to one of these, they might have. They probably say, Amazing Grace. And guess what? Everyone in the room probably sang it. Not just the Christians. It's just part of our American cultural vocabulary. And we assume that Almighty God in heaven simply exists to dispense this grace, this amazing grace. And if you try to pinpoint somebody down and say, what is it? Describe to me what God's grace is. In light of all the examples I gave you, the singing shows and the funerals and the memorials and the interfaith services, it basically amounts to, well, he's there to make us feel better when we feel bad. That's kind of the gist of it. When we feel bad, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, he's there to kind of pep us up and pick us up and make us feel better about things. That's not what God's grace is in the Bible. And the idea that God's grace is universally dispensed to every single person without discrimination is not a biblical idea because the Bible actually tells you in this passage and in others how you can experience and how you can receive God's grace. And more basically than that, the Bible tells you how God's grace was secured for you as a sinner. Here's how grace might come to be in your life, the foundational reason. Salvation is the sovereign work of the triune God. Grace comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, sovereignly working together to save sinners, to empower them, and to motivate them for right living. 
That's where grace comes from. And Paul describes it here in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll just summarize it quickly. He says salvation is the work of the Son. He talks twice in this passage about God our Savior. And that's a callback to chapter 2, where God our Savior, where grace appeared, and God our Savior came. He's talking about Jesus, Jesus who lived for us, Jesus who died for us, Jesus who was raised from the dead, who has ascended to heaven and promised to come back for his people. His mission, Luke 19.10, was seeking and saving the lost. He came to save us. That's why the angel told his mother and his father to name him Jesus because the Hebrew name means Yahweh saves. He came to save sinners. And he did that at the cross and in the resurrection. Secondly, regeneration is the work of the Spirit. God the Spirit has a role to play in this. How do we receive this grace? Jesus secured it. He accomplished our salvation. The Spirit is the one who applies it to our lives. That's called regeneration. It literally means being born again. Being born again. As a pastor, I cannot cause you to be born again. It's completely outside of my abilities. I have no capacity to cause any of you to be born again. There's no ritual we can perform. There's no magic words I can say over you. That is not my ability. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you do not have the ability to cause your kids to be born again. You can't do that. You do not have the ability. Only Almighty God working through the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has the ability to bring sinners from death to life and to cause them to be born again. Jesus spells it out very clearly in John chapter 3. The wind blows, the Spirit moves, and it's the Spirit that causes people to be born again, to be born from above. Thirdly, justification is the work of the Father. Justification is a legal term. It's the declaration of a judge saying that a person not only is innocent, but that they're also righteous. They're guilty of no crime, and they're actually credited with perfect obedience. God does that. In the lives of sinners, He justifies them. The Son saves them. The Spirit regenerates them. And the Father justifies them. He declares that they are righteous. The irony of this is that we're not righteous. And the only way a just judge can declare that we are righteous is on the basis of the finished work, the perfect work of His Son who saved us. This is the Trinity at work sovereignly for our salvation. The Son saves us, the Spirit regenerates us, the Father justifies us. It's not all that we might say about salvation, but it's certainly true that the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are at work to save sinners, to empower us for right living, and to motivate us to right living. Now, one last piece of the puzzle. We've talked about sin, and we've talked about grace, and we've talked about the Trinity. Where do we come in and what do we do? And how does all this relate to this final section of Titus as we're thinking about right living? You and I cannot be faithful in right living unless and until we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. There is no way that you can get your life in order rightly 
before Almighty, Holy God until and unless you repent of your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So I just put a few words up on the screen for you to think about. These are not on your notes. Uh, Repentance is a noun. Repent is a verb. The Greek noun would be metanoia and the verb would be metanoieo. It's the same root. And it literally means to change your mind. We've talked about change this morning, right? We once were this and now we're this. We were lost and we're found. We're blind and we see. How does a person change? Well, it's the process of repentance. Your mind has to change. The way that you think about things has to change. The way that you think about who God is has to change. The way that you think about your sin has to change. That's repentance, to change your mind and to agree with God. Faith is a noun. Uh, To have faith is the verb or to believe is the verb. And the Greek words have the same root. Pistis means faith and pistuo we typically translate as believe. But it's the same root. It's basically the idea that you're casting yourself upon another. You're relying on another. You're trusting on another. You're hoping that someone else can come through for you. You have faith in them. You believe in them. And what we see when we think about these verses in the context of Titus 3 and this last section of right living is that until and unless you repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right living is not a possibility for you. It's not a possibility. Now, we're not saying that once you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus that you'll be perfect from that point on forward. We're not saying that at all. We're actually saying the opposite. You're still going to be a sinner and you're going to need to keep turning from sin and keep trusting in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. Another way of saying this to you, this is very important, is that we never move on from the gospel. Never, never, never. In your mind, if the gospel is the thing you learn down in the the children's wing, if the gospel is the thing that we talk about at Vacation Bible School, if the gospel is the stuff that we talk to our kids and our youth about, and then when we're grown-ups, we move on to deeper, more important truths, you've missed the whole point of the Bible. Literally the whole point. The gospel's the whole story. From beginning to end, it's a story about how a holy God made a way for sinful people to be brought back into a relationship with Him. That way is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He will return. And the call on your life is simple. It's not Titus 3 Five, that you would have works done by you in righteousness, but that you would understand the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, that the Spirit of God would give you eyes to see the truth, that those of us who are blind would be able to see, that we would be brought from death to life, that we would put our faith in the Lord Jesus and be justified, be declared righteous by the Father. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is not a time when Christians gather together and pat ourselves on the back for how good we've been or how good we're going to be. The Lord's Supper is a time when Christians come together and repent. It means we agree with God. God, you're holy and we're not. We've fallen short and 
we can't fix that problem. But we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ came and accomplished everything necessary for us to be saved. And we're thankful that your spirit caused us to be born again. That you've granted us the gift of repentance and faith. This morning, if you have turned from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you've not ever done that, we want to visit with you. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you and answer any questions you have about what it means to put your faith in Jesus and to know the gift of salvation. I'm going to give you just a minute to pray. I'm just going to let you pray. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be silent. There's not going to be any noise. Uh, I'm going to let you pray and think about this passage and talk to the Lord and prepare your heart. And then I'm going to read our passage over us again. And then we're going to read from 1 Corinthians and celebrate the Lord's Supper. So you take a moment and pray.